Find Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, uh, verses 12 to 17. The curse of compromise. The curse of compromise as we continue looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation. The curse of compromise. Uh, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. A number of years ago, probably seven or eight years now, in another message, some of you may remember I read a little excerpt out of the book, The Trouble with Jesus by Joseph Stovall. The Trouble with Jesus. He was the president of Moody Bible Institute. And what he's talking about in the book is how in a pluralistic age, Jesus is not being accepted anymore. You can mention God oftentimes, but not Jesus. He writes as he begins the book, and I'll just read just, just a few paragraphs. The Chicago Leadership Prayer Breakfast is an annual event held the first Friday after the week of Thanksgiving. If you work in Chicago, attending the breakfast is the religious thing to do, second only to showing up at church on Christmas and Easter. I have gone to the event for the last 15 years. I can remember years ago when the name of Jesus was freely used in prayers and sermons alike at the breakfast. And though that has been slowly changing, this year's event was marked by what seemed to be an intentional effort to eliminate references to Jesus from the platform. If it weren't for the marvelous music of the Wheaton College choirs who unashamedly sang about him, the whole morning would have drifted by without the mere mention of his name. I doubt if the choir master had been required to submit the text of the music to, uh, to be screened for references to Jesus, given what took place in the rest of the program. The MC opened the early morning get-together by reading an excerpt from Diane X bestseller, A New Religious America, how a quote-unquote Christian country has become the world's most religiously diverse nation. He then underscored that diversity of religion in America and that it now demands a new paradigm regarding the expression of our faith. He called for a fresh wind of cooperation and tolerance. His word set the stage for all that was to follow. A representative of Islam chanted his prayer in the name of Allah. A woman rabbi, a Catholic priest, and a minister from a characteristically liberal Protestant denomination 
each led in prayer in a coordinated sequence of prayers and then finish by praying together in unison. I kept waiting to hear it, but Jesus' name was not mentioned even once. No one said that he wasn't welcome, but the message was clear. All our gods are to be equal. And when that is the agenda, the authentic biblical Jesus is trouble. Because it's difficult to include one who has claimed to be the only way to God. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so it's difficult to include that one when a diversity of paths to God is being celebrated. We're seeing that more and more in the culture today, aren't we? Mm -hmm. That type of attitude. Now, folks, as we look at the church of Pergamum, we see that they were a congregation that was willing to entertain some unfortunate compromises. And I think we would say we live in a day which expects people, Christians included, to go along with compromises and even make some compromises. Uh, and of course, we know that there are non-essentials in life, things that are certainly up for grabs that we can talk about, uh, things that don't really matter that much. But what we see from this passage is that there are some essentials to our faith that we dare not compromise. There are basics of Christian doctrine that dare not be compromised or under, undermined in any way, no matter the pressure put on us. We're going to follow the same outline we've been following with each of the churches. And, and first of all, we'll just simply talk about the church. The church, the church at Pergamum. Now, Pergamum, uh, of course, these seven churches are in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And John is writing about Jesus' address to the churches in the same order the postman of the day would have traveled. And so uh, after leaving Ephesus and then going to Smyrna, the postman, would his third delivery would have been to Pergamum. Now, Pergamum was a very distinctive place. It was the true capital of Asia Minor. It served as the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor for over 250 years. Now, most of the city, both of the cities we've looked at so far were great commercial cities, but not so with Pergamum. It was not a great commercial center, and yet it was an extremely wealthy place. What Pergamum was known for was being a religious center. And religions of all sorts, religions of all stripes, dwelt and thrived at Pergamum. There was basically a, a saying at the time that any weird religion or philosophy or weird idea that was um, clamoring for attention could probably find a good hearing and a home at Pergamum. That's the kind of place Pergamum was. In fact, there were four distinctive cults that were active there. Now, it was also the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple to Caesar, which they built in 29 B.C., and it became the capital of the cult of Caesar worship. 
And so the people of Pergamum would offer sacrifices to Caesar, sprinkle incense on the flame, and say, Caesar is Lord. You know, I suppose in some ways, Pergamum would remind you of Athens, Greece. You remember Paul in Acts chapter 17 going to Athens? Remember what Paul was going to do in Athens? He was just simply going to wait there until his traveling companions, his missionary companions, joined him. You remember? But as he was there in the city of Athens and walking around, what is it that happened to Paul? What disturbed him? All of the idols. And I mean, he was really provoked. To the point, he finally had to speak up. And then they invited him to the Areopagus, which was like the town center and it, the Areopagus was also the chief council there. And they said, we need to hear more about what you're talking about. And, you know, he said, I perceive you to be very religious while going through your city. I've even seen an altar to an unknown God. Well, I'm here to proclaim to you today who that God is. That you don't even know his name, but I'm going to tell you his name. His name's Jesus. And he preached Jesus there in Pergamum was that kind of place. In fact, there were both Greek and Roman idols and Greek and Roman temples there in Pergamum. It was also thought to be an intellectual town, or that's how they saw themselves. It was a liberal university town where the social elite were. And they viewed themselves as the progressive, educated people out of the masses. It hosted a library of some 200,000 volumes, second only to Alexandria, Egypt. In fact, Alexandria, Egypt was so jealous of Pergamum that they actually cut off shipments of papyrus to Pergamum, forcing them to develop some other kind of writing material. And so what they did at Pergamum was develop parchment, a kind of writing material made out of animal skins. And so even today when you graduate from college, they say that you get your what? Sheepskin, even though it's not, it's paper. But anyway, sheepskin. Well, that goes back to Pergamum. Now the library at Pergamum was eventually sent to Egypt as a gift from Anthony to Cleopatra. But I want you to notice how Jesus addresses the church there. He says, the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword says this. Now, what would a sword be? A symbol of what? Authority. Symbol of authority. Being the capital of Asia Minor, Rome had given Pergamum the authority to exercise capital punishment. But Christ reminds his church at Pergamum that he's the one who holds real authority. And he reminds them that his sword is double-edged and sharp. And perhaps the double-edged symbol reminds us of the double-edged character of the Word of God. That on one hand, it cuts to bring us to repentance. And if you don't repent and listen, on the other hand, it cuts, bringing judgment. So it can either be a blessing or it can be a means of judgment. You know, the gospel always has that double-edged nature to it, doesn't it? It frees those who listen 
and it condemns those who don't. And so the power of either life or death belongs to Christ's sword, which is his precious word. Now secondly, let's move on to look at the commendation. Uh, in every church, before he gives any type of condemnation, he, he tells them something good about what he sees there. And in verse 13, look at what we're, we're told. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. His commendation is a word of encouragement. A word of encouragement. He says, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. Jesus says it's not only your capital city, but it's also the headquarters of Satan. In other words, Satan is pictured here as having a home base of operations in the whole region of Asia Minor. Decisions, don't, don't forget, decisions, political decisions were made in Pergamum for the whole region. And those earthly powers would discuss laws and procedures that would impact the entire land. Now think about it. If you were the devil wanting to throw a nation in chaos, where would you make sure you had a base of operations? Say, in America, Washington, D.C., right? Exactly. Exactly. Folks, the Bible tells us whether we believe it or not, there's a spiritual warfare going on. We, we fight against principalities and powers in high places. In a word of approval, Jesus first gives a word of assurance, a word of encouragement to his church. He says, I know where you live. I want you to think about that. It's comforting to know that Jesus understands the difficulty of your environment if you're in a difficult environment. He knows all about it. You might say, well, pastor, you just don't understand my work environment. You don't understand how difficult and evil the people are around me. You're right. I may not understand, but I know somebody who does understand. Amen. He knows the difficulty we sometimes have in serving a God we can't physically touch and to fight a devil we can't see. He knows your environment. <coughs> he knows your circumstances. He knows the places that He puts us to be salt and light. He knows that many of these places are places of darkness where demonic powers are at work. He understands the enemies that we fight against. He knows all of this. He knows about the pluralism of a society that seeks God in all ways except the right way. And He has a purpose. Folks, if he placed us where everybody believed, there wouldn't really be a great commission to fulfill, right? He places us where we can be ambassadors. His commendation is also a word of approval. He says, you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. 
they have remained steadfast and faithful in a pagan world. For the most part, the church has been loyal to the person of Christ and loyal to Christian doctrine. And, and he's giving commendation and approval of that. Even though they've been in a very difficult place, they've got a very strong enemy, they've been faithful. They have even watched Antipas, somebody named Antipas, be put to death. Antipas, the word means against all. He was someone, some leader, who was against all the voices of compromise. He was some kind of leader among them who was challenging the church to be faithful. And what did the enemies of Christ do to him? They put him to death. And the church witnessed that. And so they witnessed one of their leaders die for his faith. And yet what has happened? They've not run. They've not hidden. They've not denied the Lord. They've remained faithful just like Antipas was. And you know, it's a reminder to me that uh, once again we see that faithfulness is what the Lord is after most in our lives. Of course, He wants our love, but He wants our faithfulness. Even if you don't feel like you're the most talented, He wants your faithfulness in the spiritual gift He's given you. He wants your faithfulness in the circumstances where He's placed you to be a witness. He's after faithfulness. And in Pergamum, most in the church have been faithful. Well, let's look at the condemnation, verses 14 and 15. Uh, he says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balaam to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice the idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So what was the accusation? What was that? And, and the condemnation that he delivers, what's the accusation he's making against them? What have they done? They've compromised. They've compromised. And... This letter makes it clear that compromise is deadly to a church. And if it's not repented of, it'll bring the judgment of Christ just as surely as unbelief will. Compromise is a subtle evil. Folks, do you realize that some Christians who would never dream of outright denying Jesus will oftentimes compromise on issues and end up weakening their Christian testimony. They'll start making little compromises in different areas of their life, right? And pretty soon, they've made way more compromises than they would have ever set out to do. You see, Satan knows that if he can't stop the truth from penetrating the heart, he can work on that heart in the matter of compromise. And what happens is he robs that person of the power of gospel being seen in their lives. You know, Jesus in the parable of the sower spoke of the evil of compromise. He talked about the seed that was sown on thorny ground and he described what that thorny ground was. It... it, it, it uh, symbolize the cares 
and the riches of this life. And I think one of the most tragic examples of the sin of compromise in the New Testament was the case of Demas. Remember Demas? Demas was one of the traveling companions of the Apostle Paul. Imagine being one of the missionary traveling companions with the Apostle Paul. Going from city to city and place to place, planting churches and preaching the gospel. And Demas was right there side by side with Paul. But when Paul's at the end of his life writing to Timothy, and he's wanting Timothy to come to him soon because Paul's in prison, and this time he knows he's not going to be delivered. He's, he's going to die for his faith. And he's wanting Timothy to bring some items to him, the scriptures and a cloak because winter's coming. And he says, nobody is with me anymore. Nobody is standing with me. Even Demas has turned back. To the world. Isn't that a sad testimony? Demas has turned back to the world. He was a compromiser. And at Pergamum, there were two specific compromises that were mentioned. The first was a compromise after the way of Balaam. Now, you may remember the story of Balaam occupies a significant portion of the book of Numbers. And Balak, the king of Moab, 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 I'm sorry, Moab, Balak hires Balaam to curse the children of Israel. And every time he opens his mouth to curse the children of Israel, what does he end up doing? Blessing them. Blessing and so, uh, finally unable to curse them, he counsels Balak to get their women to intermarry with the Israelites and corrupt them slowly into worshiping their gods. And that's eventually what happened. And so at Pergamum, they had survived open oppression from the outside, but they had begun to compromise from the inside they had begun to tolerate some of the opposing ideas and philosophies at Pergamum. And there's a hint to the fact that the Christians at Pergamum had begun to engage in some type of these cult activities. And maybe since they were compared to what happened with Balaam, Maybe even in the church, they were giving their daughters to some of the pagan men in the culture and vice versa. Folks, I can't tell you the number of times as a pastor I've had some lady sitting in my office crying her eyes out because her husband, uh, her husband is doing all sorts of things. She knew he was an unbeliever when she married him, but she said, Pastor, I thought when I married him, I could change him. I wish I had a dollar for every time some lady has told me that. And she says, I haven't been able to change him at all. He put up a good front so I would marry him, but over the years he's gotten worse and worse about some of the things he was doing. And now he's doing some things that the marriage is on the rocks. No wonder Paul said, do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. I think of Samson in the Old Testament. To me, he's a classic example of compromise. Israelites were not to marry 
foreign women. Because those foreign women, the reason was, not because they were of another nationality, but because they served pagan gods. And you remember what happened with Samson? He set his eyes on a Philistine woman. And she must have been quite a looker. And he told his parents, because parents back then would arrange marriages, uh, told his parents, get her for me to be a wife. And they said, son, isn't there some young girl out of our people, you know, that you would, would be satisfied with? And he said, get her for me. And they did. But you know, it wasn't long after that, who else did Samson start going after? Prostitutes. And then after prostitutes, who came next? Delilah. And we know how that ended, right? She enticed him to give away the secret of his strength. The Philistines blinded him. They made him a grinder in the prison. I tell you what, he is a tragedy in the Bible. It was the curse of compromise that brought Samson down. And it's compromise at Pergamum that's beginning to cause the church at Pergamum to crumble from within. They'd been tolerating some of what was going on in their city. And they were letting some of these evil practices gain a bigger and bigger foothold in their church. And you know, maybe they were saying, hey, come on folks, let's, let's be open-minded, you know? Let's, let's allow those in the church who don't believe quite as strongly as we believe in Jesus and His Word. Let's, let's let them in and, you know, even be in some leadership positions. And, you know, there's some other convictions. Maybe we need to relax a little bit. And, and let's just don't be so dogmatic about these things. I mean, after all, we live at Pergamum. We're a university town. We're educated. We're the socially elite. Let, let's entertain some of these other ideas. Who knows? We might be able to learn something in the long run. Maybe that was their thinking. And so what had begun? This slippery slope downhill. Folks, when Satan can't curse and destroy the church from the outside, what will he try to do? Get on the inside and destroy it through theological compromise, ethical compromise, moral compromise. And he'll try to hurt a church that way from within. Well, he also mentions here compromise after the way of the Nicolaitans there in verse 15. Now, one of the church fathers named Irenaeus writes that Nicholas, who was a deacon that was specifically mentioned by name in Acts chapter 6, Irenaeus mentions that Nicholas was a false believer. That Nicholas ended up trying to lead people into the church into immorality and wickedness. Another early church father, Clement of Alexander, says they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. What they were doing was perverting the teaching of God's grace, saying that, hey folks, because we are forgiven, you know what? We can live in sin. 
And hey, the more you sin, the more the grace of God that covers you. So let's just live in sin. And you know what Paul said about that to the Romans, right? God forbid that we should live that way. That using forgiveness because of the grace of God as an excuse to sin. It's interesting uh, what they were doing to put a spin on things. Also, something else the Nicolaitans did. We know that they drew a sharp division between the clergy and the laity. They said, let the clergy be holy and do right and live right, but you're free to do whatever. And so they established one standard for church leaders and another standard for everybody else in the church. Does the Bible do that? No. The Bible says we are all to be holy. We're all ministers. If you're a Christian, you're a minister. There's not different standards for different people in the church. Oh, but sure, one group may have higher accountability, but the standards of holiness are the same. But the Nicolaitans were trying to set up two different standards, and Jesus says here, God hated that. You say, that's strong language. And yes, it is strong language. But remember going back to the church at Ephesus, what he told Ephesus? You better listen to me. If you don't listen to me, I'm going to come and remove your candlestick. And what was the candlestick? The church itself. So does God care about holiness in His church? You better believe it. Well, next, fourthly, let's see the challenge. Look at verses 16 and 17. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Folks, there is only one challenge given to a person when their life starts going downhill, twisting downhill this slope of compromise. And what is that word of challenge? Repent. Repent. What's repentance referred to? I just feel sorry for my sin and keep doing what I'm doing anyway? No. I'm going that direction in my sin and I make a complete about face. I turn away from it. So if you're here professing Christ with your lips, but living by the standards of the world, the Lord Jesus says to you, repent. And I want you to notice something important here. Notice that in verse 15, the Lord says, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Some, not all. And yet I want you to notice when the Lord called for repentance, He called for a wholesale repentance of everybody. You know, what do people tend to say today? Oh, just live and let live. Uh, we may tolerate compromise thinking, well, you know, after all, I'm not guilty. But Jesus tells them all at Pergamum to repent. 
As a body of believers, we do ourselves and others no favor by tolerating compromise. Folks, the teaching on the church in the New Testament is clear. When we see wrong, we are to lovingly call for change. If there's no change, then the New Testament church is to exercise appropriate discipline to deal with the trespass. And discipline always has a redemptive motive. It's not just to be punitive, but uh, it's to draw a person back in. Remember Paul talking to the church at Corinth? They needed to exercise judgment and discipline against the wrongdoer in their assembly. And Paul told them they needed to be ashamed of themselves because as a church, they had not dealt with this sin. He's telling them here to deal with the sin of compromise in their midst. And he's saying, if you don't, I'm going to come and deal with you. This is perhaps one of the greatest and most needed challenges to the modern day church in a tolerant 21st century society. Because some Christians just, they want to make love preeminent. Oh, let's just love everybody. Let's drown our differences in the ocean of brotherly love, right? And others will go to the other extreme. They'll, they'll pursue truth at the expense of love. And, and so they become harsh and judgmental and, and, and bitter and unloving. But folks, it's not either or. It's both and. We're to be loving and we're to be holy. We're to be both. And then a second challenge that he gives in verse 17, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. In the Bible, we're told to listen. What's implied is put into practice what you hear. In other words, listen with more than your ears. Listen with your heart. Live out what you're hearing. Become a doer of the Word. If you don't become a doer of the Word, you're deceiving yourself. And so what's the Lord saying to the church through this letter? Very simply, do not compromise your faith. Paul says in Romans 13, And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Now, after all these words, I want you to look the conclusion here is as we look at the motivation Christ gives them for obeying Him. He gives a promise of hidden man. You say, what in the world's going on here? Well, I want you to remember back in the Old Testament again, God provided manna for the children of Israel in the wilderness. They were in surroundings in the wilderness where they had absolutely nothing. And though they were in a setting where they had absolutely nothing, what did God do? God took care of them. God provided what they needed. They needed food. He provided that. 
How does this tie in with compromise? Well, sometimes people feel like they have to compromise because if they don't, they might end up losing something that they think they need in the world. And so what's he saying to them here? Basically, remember how the Israelites had nothing, and yet God provided. And so the Lord's saying to His church, even if their faithfulness should cost them everything in the world, He's going to be faithful to them, and He's going to take care of them. Amen? Amen. Remember Peter on one occasion asking, saying, Lord, we've left everything to follow You. We've left everything. So what's going to happen to us? Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for My name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. What's Jesus saying to His disciples? If you lose everything, I'm going to be there and provide everything you need. And you're going to end up with more than you, more than you had in eternity. Somebody says, well, if I don't compromise, I might lose friends. Well, what's the Lord say? I'll give you new friends. Christian friends. Better friends. Then there's the promise of the white stone. You say, what's that about? Well, in ancient times, when a court was going to hear a matter, those judging would cast in a white stone if they felt the person was innocent and a black stone if they felt the party was guilty. Jesus is saying he's the real judge, he's the real authority, and those who do not compromise will receive the white stone, the not guilty verdict. And notice he even goes on to say on that white stone is a new name. Christ knows you intimately, individually. And so at the judgment seat of Christ, His reward to you will be deeply personal and special. I just simply want to ask you tonight where you stand on the matter of compromise. How much of a friend of the world are you? James and James 4 said, if you have made yourself a friend of the world, you have become an enemy of God. Are you too much of a friend of the world tonight? Are you willing to take a stand for Christ? We do live in a society that wants to say just be open-minded about all kinds of stuff, even gross perversions. That's the kind of world we live in. But are you willing to take a stand on God's Word and the principles of His Word and say, here I stand, I can do no other. Maybe this week you need to evaluate some areas of your life. Maybe little compromises have begun to slip in and you need to deal with those. Deal with them now before they get bigger and harder to deal with. 
tell you, these letters are rich, aren't they? Written in the first century, but speak very powerfully to us in the 21st century. Amen.